You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 102, No Man Han, Part 4, Disaster on the Holston. This week, a big thank you goes out to Dale for choosing to support the podcast by becoming a member, gaining access to ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special member-only episodes released roughly every month. You can head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more. After the Japanese failures of July, in which they attempted to launch an attack over the river to dislodge the Soviets on the western side, the fighting around Nomanhan settled down to a series of small Japanese efforts, each of which were answered by a Soviet response. At the same time that they were defending against these Japanese efforts, the Red Army was also preparing for its own offensive, and it would be the largest one yet. When planning for the offensive, Zhukov wanted to go big. During July, most of the Japanese attacks and Soviet counterattacks had been relatively small affairs, maybe a regiment or two in the attack, a regiment or two in the counterattack, but that was mostly all that had been happening. Zhukov wanted to launch attacks with divisions when he kicked off his offensive in late August. To do this, he requested yet another fresh batch of units to expand to those already under his command. During July, two more infantry divisions, two Mongolian cavalry divisions, another tank brigade, and an airborne brigade would all be sent to reinforce his army group. These formations were also accompanied by a wide range of support units, including more artillery and additional air power. When all of the units were moved into place, the Red Army would have over 200 artillery pieces, almost 500 armored vehicles, and 600 aircraft available for the attack. They were also supported by a constant shuttle of over 4,000 trucks that were used to bring all of these new forces into the combat area and then keep them supplied as they prepared for the upcoming offensive. This massive logistical effort was required, but they were still able to catch the Japanese by surprise. The Japanese knew that some additional Soviet reinforcements had arrived, both from information acquired from air sort of reconnaissance but also because they knew about some of the traffic on the Trans-Siberian Railway. But they would greatly underestimate the scale of the Soviet buildup. Additional reinforcements would arrive for the 23rd Division, both in the form of individual replacements, over 1,100 of them, but all of these replacements basically just brought the 23rd up to its original strength, which meant it was going to be horribly outnumbered. A few additional infantry regiments would also be dispatched to assist, eventually, bringing the total number of Japanese forces up to about one and a half divisions. There could have been more Japanese forces moved into the area, 
but in general it was not felt that it was necessary, due to estimates of how many troops that the Japanese believed the Soviets had, and how many they could also support on such a lengthy supply line. The, the Japanese didn't really understand how big of a logistical effort the Soviets were willing to make. Zhukov would also make an effort to support this underestimation. One of the easy ways that this was done was that at any given time, there were not that many Soviet units on the eastern side of the river until just a few days before the attack. The eastern side of the river being the, the easiest place for the Japanese to see them and kind of understand what they were dealing with. On August 18th, there would be only four infantry regiments across the river and, and right against the Japanese to maintain the illusion that there had not been a massive buildup of Soviet forces. Operational security was also maintained, and many lower-level officers would only be informed of the forthcoming attack four days before it began. Zhukov would divide his forces into three different groups for the attack. The central group would just launch a frontal attack to tie down Japanese resources. On the left and the right, the goal would be to push through Japanese positions and surround them with armor that would allow for the annihilation of the Japanese units that were caught in the middle. However, unlike when the Japanese had divided their forces, for the Soviet forces, when they did so, they would still have a much larger you know, number of forces in total and allowed them for, even after they split, for the wings to outnumber the Japanese that they were facing, unlike the Japanese who had split their forces and were then outnumbered in all areas. In the 48 hours before the attack began, Soviet forces were moved into position which mostly involved moving across the river to be ready for the attack to begin early in the morning of the August 20th. The moves were made during these hours of darkness to hide them as much as possible from the Japanese. When the attack did begin, the first stage was an almost three-hour artillery bombardment while Soviet attack aircraft did their best to hit Japanese artillery positions and troop concentrations. This included almost 200 Soviet bombers, mostly light bombers with some heavy bombers mixed in as well. They would hit their targets at around 6 a.m. The bombers then returned to base to rearm for another sortie before the attack began. At 8.15 a.m., the artillery fire increased in intensity for the next 45 minutes until 9 a.m., when the infantry and armor units began their movement forward and the artillery continued their bombardment. There was also some luck involved in the attack because there was fog covering most of the areas around the river on the morning of the 20th, which provided good concealment for the Soviet troops as they began their great adventure. When the attack initially began, the Japanese officers were not completely sure what they were facing, because the attack just kind of seemed to be on such a wide front that the greatest point of Soviet effort was unclear, so the Japanese didn't necessarily have a great initial response. There was the problem of the Soviet attack in the center, and also the armor and cavalry attacks on the left and the right. On many areas of the front, the Soviet attack would experience general success. In the south, forces commanded by Colonel Potapov would attack the Japanese line on its left and southern flank. The goal of the attack was to push forward until the Soviet infantry reached the Holston River, which ran east to west, cutting the battle area roughly in half. The Japanese line was fully penetrated in many areas along this front, and this enabled the Soviet forces to surround and destroy various Japanese units through the use of point-blank artillery and flamethrowers. While these units were destroyed, mostly by the end of August 23rd, there was also a more concerning development for Japanese leaders, as the Soviet 8th Armored Brigade on the far left of the Japanese line began to advance north across the Holston River and towards Nomanhan. 
In the north, the Soviet attacks were even more successful, with two different armored brigades pushing through the Japanese lines and then advancing south, with the goal of meeting the 8th and cutting off all Japanese troops to the west. The only area where the Soviet attack was not a complete success was in the center, where instead of the successes experienced by those units on the flanks, the Soviet attack in this area stagnated pretty quickly. The Japanese defenders in this area had been initially caught off guard, but over the course of the day, the Japanese defenders would recover in the center and begin to offer some stout resistance, which made continuing attacks difficult. During all of this action, the Red Army Air Force was still very active, dropping over 86,000 kilograms of bombs over the course of three days of fighting. This represented an important turnaround from the situation over the front in July, during which the Japanese had largely been able to control the air over the battlefield. During July, the Japanese had claimed that they had a 12 to 1 kill ratio for aircraft over the front, a number that was almost certainly greatly exaggerated. But in August, these estimates shrank to roughly 5 to 1, again probably overestimated because these are Japanese numbers. Even if we assume that the Soviets were losing more aircraft, they were almost certainly winning the war of attrition, mostly due to the lack of resources on the Japanese side. Both aircraft and quality pilots were in short supply for the Japanese, as so many of both had been committed to the fighting in China. The greatest impact was on Japanese pilots, who were called to higher and higher sortie rates as numbers of total Japanese squadrons dwindled. By the time of the attacks in August, the Soviets had a roughly 2 to 1 advantage in the air over the battlefield. Of equal concern for the Japanese pilots was the growing presence of newer Soviet aircraft along the front, including an upgraded version of the I-16 fighter with increased armor, which made it challenging for the Japanese Type 97 fighter, armed only with relatively light 7.7mm machine guns, to cause any damage to. This challenge was recognized and adaptations were made, with heavier machine guns being fitted to the Type 97, but the lull between the appearance of the upgraded I-16 and then the upgunned Type 97 was a challenging time for Japanese pilots, where in some ways it felt like there was nothing they could do. One thing to keep in mind about the air combat during this time, and this will be equally true for the rest of the Second World War, the accounts given by the two air forces should be taken with a serious grain of salt. Anytime you're talking about kill numbers or kill ratio or, or even the experiences of pilots, they can be really misrepresented due to how quick air combat was happening. Nomenhan 1939, the Red Army's victory that shaped World War II by Stuart B. Goldman, would have this to say about this. Quote, Soviet and Japanese accounts give wildly different and equally unbelievable tallies of victories and losses in the air combat. So that's just something to keep in mind as we move forward. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, 
shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. After they had recovered from the initial shock of the Soviet attack, Japanese leaders, both on the scene at 23rd Division headquarters and higher up at the 6th Army, began to plan for their counterstroke. The plan that was initially put in place was a bold one, involving the 23rd Division moving most of its available forces to the south side of the Holston River to launch a counterattack against the Soviet forces that had done so much damage to Japanese positions in that area. The orders for this attack would be dispatched late in the afternoon of the 22nd, which was quite a bit before the actual kickoff, which was scheduled for early in the morning on the 24th. Just because the orders were dispatched, though, from headquarters, did not mean that they were instantly received by the units that would take part in the attack, and instead some important officers would not receive details of the upcoming action until late in the evening on the 23rd, just hours before the attack was supposed to happen. Once that information was received, whenever that was, units had to start moving into position for the attack, but there was a problem. The Soviets were still attacking. And to get the units that were slated to attack ready to attack, in many cases they had to be pulled out of the line and then moved elsewhere. This task was incredibly challenging in some areas of the front because of the Soviet pressure, which often meant that some units that would start their movement got tangled up in fighting again. Extracting all of these units was difficult enough, but it also meant that the attack would not be launched by fresh reinforcements, or units that had a good chunk of time behind the line. Instead, the units that would take part in the upcoming fighting had just spent multiple days fighting a brutal defensive battle, having suffered casualties and and the resulting lack of cohesion. You may be wondering, if all of these units were being pulled out of the line to participate in the attack, who would be defending the areas of the front that they had been in? And that is a great question that many Japanese officers near the front also had to contend with. What ended up happening in, in these cases is that decisions were made that weakened the forthcoming attack. For example, the plan was for the entirety of the 71st Regiment, under the command of Colonel Morita, to participate in the attack. But he was one of the officers that did not receive his orders until late in the evening of the 23rd, and he was also very concerned about the continued Soviet pressure that was being put on his sector of the front that the 71st was defending. Therefore, instead of moving the entire regiment into the attack, Merida only dispatched an understrength battalion. Merida's decision was replicated by other officers as well, faced with orders that did not conform to the state of the front when they received them. What had been written back at 6th Army headquarters several days before 
was simply impossible to fully execute on by August 24th. This meant that even when the attack did begin, it was many hours late and in broad daylight instead of in the early morning hours, while also being under strength. The only good news is that when it did happen, the battlefield was once again covered in heavy fog, which was always a benefit to troops making an assault. For the Japanese troops, it was even more valuable, due to the Soviet advantages in artillery. But then the fog cleared, and the realities of the differences in strength between the two armies became very clear very quickly. Japanese artillery capabilities were drastically outclassed by those of the Soviets, and the troops on the ground were heavily outnumbered. This included large Soviet tank forces, with the 72nd Regiment getting first-hand experience with early models of the T-34 tank, which would go on to have so much success during the Second World War. Needless to say, with all of these problems, the first day of the attack was completely unsuccessful. But orders arrived late in the evening that the Japanese units should continue to attempt their attack the next day. The next day, when those attacks were launched, they were done by fewer troops, less artillery preparation was made, and there was a little reduction in the Soviet strength that they were facing, and of course the attacks were even less successful. By the end of the second day's attacks, some of the units that had been initially put into the attack were down to 50% of their original strength, and had made absolutely zero actual progress. Instead, they were stopped, you know, hundreds of meters from Soviet positions, and they were forced to try and just hang on against artillery bombardment until it grew dark and they could withdraw. While the Red Army was dealing with the problems caused by the Japanese counterattacks in the south, in the north there was still the problem of the Japanese units that continued to defend their initial positions on Fua Heights. During the initial attacks on the 20th, the defense, led by Lieutenant Colonel Ioki Ichirio, had held their positions quite strongly, and then over the next several days that defense had continued. However, as so many other Japanese units were pushed back, supplying the troops on the heights became more and more difficult, until late on the 22nd, the last supply routes were cut. Then on the 23rd, the last remaining working radio was destroyed, which meant that there was no communication between the cutoff defenders and nearby Japanese units. By the next day, the continued defense of the positions was clearly hopeless, and his subordinate officers were able to convince Aoki that he should order what was left of his forces, 200 out of the original 800, to try and break out of the Soviet encirclement and make their way back to friendly units to the east. Aoki was initially resistant to this idea, having been ordered to defend the hills to the last man. But after a moment in which Aoki was forcefully prevented from committing suicide, he ordered his remaining men to abandon their positions on the night of August 24th. Over the course of the night hours, what remained of the Japanese units slipped through the Soviet forces surrounding them until they encountered a Manchukoan cavalry patrol the next morning. With Fora Heights now under Soviet control, there was nothing preventing the northern and southern pincers of the Soviet attack from closing around all of the Japanese forces west of Nomanhan, and this would happen on August 25th, when the 11th Tank Brigade coming from the north met the 8th Armored Brigade coming up from the south. Over the 24 hours after these units met, their positions were reinforced to make the Soviet ring around what was left of the Japanese 6th Army as strong as possible. Then the process of squeezing those that were left began. By August 26th, there were really only three main pockets of Japanese resistance, and the situation was generally very bleak as supplies and ammunition began to run out. When the Soviet attack was renewed on the 27th with an emphasis on tank attacks, they were advancing against Japanese units that were, in many cases, completely out of anti-tank ammunition. And those that 
did have any were on their last rounds. The Japanese artillery guns that were trapped in the pockets also had to adapt to their new situation, as one battery commander would explain. Quote, Battalion guns could not destroy hostile armor. In fact, we tried not to hit the targets directly with them. Our purpose was to convince the enemy that the Japanese were still in business. It was a kind of camouflage effort to conceal our actual weakness in firepower. End quote. There were some initial conversations on the Japanese side that the answer had to be committing more troops. But by the time that more troops could arrive on August 27th in the form of the 7th Division, they were already going to be heavily outnumbered by the resources committed by the Soviets. They would still try to launch an attack to break through to the encircled Japanese positions, but after one day of hard fighting, they had made basically no progress. Within the pockets, things were more bleak by the hour, under constant attack from Soviet aircraft, artillery, armor, and infantry, slowly squeezed into smaller and smaller perimeters. Over the next few days, they were slowly destroyed, with the final Japanese position south of the Holston River destroyed on August 27th. On the afternoon of the 28th, the 64th Regiment, under the command of Colonel Yamagata, was finally overrun, with Yamagata burning the regimental colors and then committing suicide. On the 29th, what remained of the 71st Regiment would join their commander in a suicide charge to be cut down by Soviet machine guns. Even with the entire Japanese position collapsing around them, General Komatsubara resolved to launch another hopeless attack with the goal of defending positions around the Holston River until the last man. On the 27th, he would issue orders that, quote, The division has been ordered to secure the positions on both shores of the Holston River. The division is going to establish a defensive system by making contact with those frontline units that are still in position. The mission, which is important and difficult, can only be accomplished with a do-or-die spirit, and if the entire unit is imbued with one heart. I am prepared to die. All of you should share my resolve and carry out this mission with a sublime spirit of sacrifice. End quote. The attack would begin at 11 p.m. on the 27th, with all that remained of the 23rd Division, which was 1,500 troops at best, with other estimates putting it as low as 500. It is very likely that Komatsubura himself did not know exactly how many men were remaining, given the disorganization of the previous days. They would make it to the Holston, and they would set up defensive positions around the old engineer bridge, but they would advance no further. On the 28th, three officers were dispatched to make their way back to 6th Army Headquarters to report on what was happening, and then the next night, three more officers were sent, carrying the last wills of Komatsubura and other officers. But then, on the 30th, something interesting happened. Radio communication, which had not worked for several days, was restored, and the orders from the 6th Army were clear. Komatsubura was ordered to retreat as quickly as possible to preserve whatever was left of his command. The retreat would actually be somewhat successful, with around 400 men making it out of the final attack alive. Komatsubura would also survive, although on the march back to 6th Army headquarters, one of his staff officers had to relieve him of his sidearm, fearing that at any moment he might choose to commit suicide. By the 31st, with all Japanese units having been pushed out of the disputed territory, Soviet forces began to dig in along what they claimed to be the new frontier. There were some initial plans formulated by the 6th Army to launch large counterattacks, but direct orders were given by the Emperor and Army High Command that no attacks should be launched. And with that, the fighting around Nomenhan was over, and in early September an agreement would be reached in Moscow to officially end the fighting. The cost of the actions around Nomenhan, in terms of the number of men killed or wounded, is very fuzzy. Both sides report different numbers for themselves and for their enemies, 
And there's also some understatement of their own casualties, which has been verified based on information that was uncovered after the Second World War was over. The best guess is that Japanese casualties were somewhere around 20,000, with it possibly being several thousand more or less. This represented a huge casualty percentage of the 23rd Division, somewhere around 76%, with other units involved suffering even higher casualties. Along with this, the men that were killed or wounded, large numbers of Japanese tanks, artillery pieces, and about 150 aircraft were also lost, which would drastically reduce overall Japanese strength in Manchuria for the next several months. On the Soviet side, the casualties are, if anything, more confusing. The Soviets would claim at the time that they only suffered a a little over 9,000 casualties, a number that is almost certainly far too low. New research in the early 2000s instead puts the number a bit higher, at about 25,000, based on the documentary evidence present in unit histories. That number seems more reasonable to me, although with all these numbers, you know, it's hard to know for certain. For the two commanders, Komatsubora would retire in early 1940, and then die before the end of the year of stomach cancer. Zhukov, well, Zhukov would go on to be one of, if not the, most influential Soviet military officers of the Second World War. He would move from the Far East to take over the command of the Kiev military district, and then his actions during the Second World War will be well covered in future episodes. For both armies, the experience at Nomenhan would be important. For the Soviets, it would be a great set of experiences from which they could draw upon for future actions. For the Japanese, the conclusions that could be drawn were far more worrying. It was clear that the Japanese had underestimated the Red Army, and that they were simply unprepared to wage the war of firepower on the scale of what the Red Army could do. And while some official reports would draw this conclusion, not all the Japanese military leaders would agree with it. And instead of properly and honestly accounting for the deficiencies of the Imperial Japanese Army, they instead fell back on simply believing that they needed to improve the morale and fighting spirit of the Japanese soldier. In No Man Han, Japan Against Russia 1939 by Alvin D. Cooks, he would explain it like this, quote, Again and again, the Imperial Japanese Army analysts fell back on easy, comfortable frames of reference, spiritual elan, close-quarter anti-tank assaults, aerial dogfighting, night attacks, raiding, and infantry charges, end quote. In effect, they just believed that the Japanese had to get better at what they were already doing, instead of taking the step of fully reconsidering how they planned to fight a future war. And this misunderstanding of, of what kind of war Japan would be involved in in the future, if they were fighting the Soviet Red Army or if they were fighting any other large military force, would prove to be a real problem for Japan over the next six years, especially after 1941, when they were suddenly at war with one of the largest industrial superpowers in the world. 